Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Today, we come to a message that, honestly, I don't want to preach. I don't. This is one that I knew was coming, and I knew was on the horizon, but I haven't been excited to preach this. Well, in some ways I am, but in other ways I'm not. We can't fully understand heaven unless we also acknowledge and talk about two other essential doctrines that are their counterpart. That's the doctrine of hell and the devil. The Bible is not silent about these things, and so we can't afford to be either. And so often in our culture, we we are scared off, we're afraid of confronting truth. And so we just don't talk about things. We just bury things in the sand and I don't believe that that's going to be a good excuse when we meet Jesus in heaven to just say, God, I was afraid to talk about that part of the Bible. You know, Jesus talked about hell more than almost anything else. The reality of it, the nature of it. And today we're going to take a look at it. And, and oftentimes on, on this spectrum, when we talk about this subject matter, we can find ourselves kind of vacillating in, in two different opposing sort of unhealthy dynamics. And one of the unhealthy dynamics is that we just believe that it's a non-issue and that the devil doesn't really exist, or if he does, he uh, does really not have any influence, um, that he is not active, and we have this perception that says we don't need to address it because it's not really a big deal. We just ignore it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's some of us who have a fascination with evil and the devil, and we, we romanticize him. We give him more power and authority than he really has. We obsess about him. And today, my intention is not to be kind of on either one of those extremes, but simply to present you as best I can right now in the space where I am, in my own understanding and learning. We're all on a journey here. And I want to just acknowledge to you, I'm presenting to you what I'm understanding through my study of Scripture at this point in my life. But there's no way we can exhaustively understand all of this comprehensively. And so I'm presenting to you just what the Bible says when it comes to hell and comes to the devil. A good chunk of this will be, we're just going to fire through and you can take those cards that were on your seat and take notes. It's going to be sort of a bit of teaching that we're going to do this morning. We're going to make a whole bunch of observations and then hopefully we're going to kind of land the plane with the so what factor. It's great. So the Bible talks about it. What does that really mean? C.S. Lewis, in one of his greatest books called The Problem of Pain, he said this when talking about hell and the reality that we're faced with. This quote from him, which we don't have. All right. I didn't memorize it. So what he said was something to the effect like, I don't want to talk about it, but the Bible talks about it, so we have to talk about it. He said it really, the reason we have to talk about it, there's two. One of the reasons is that the Bible does address it. And so the Bible addresses it from a spiritual standpoint. The other reason we have to talk about it is because it's logical. It actually makes rational and logical sense. If we believe in a heaven, that there's a counterpart to that. It's not foolishness to believe that. There, there's this law that we believe in so much of creation and physics and the scientific world. We believe the law of opposites, right? 
Everything has an equal and opposite reaction to it. So the Bible makes it clear that that's actually true as well of heaven and hell. So not only does the Bible talk about it, it makes logical sense to talk about it. It's the one thing that we don't want to talk about. And if I had my choice, I wouldn't. But I don't have a choice in this matter. And neither do you. We need to wrestle with this together. If you have a Bible, you can take it out and turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to first take a look at this being, this angelic being, who goes by a few names in the Bible. He goes by the name Lucifer. He goes by the name the devil. He goes by the name Satan often. And we're just going to take a, a, a bit of a dive here into who he is. Ezekiel 28 is a prophetic vision that God is giving to Ezekiel. And this prophetic vision starts with the description of an earthly king. But we'll see in Ezekiel and also with Isaiah that the, the narrative, the vision quickly turns from describing the earthly king to describing a power or influence that's behind him. A power or influence in the spiritual realm that's actually pushing these kings along. And so the language shifts from talking about, you know, an earthly man to talking about this angelic being, this creature named Lucifer. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19. Then this further message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, that's Ezekiel he's talking to, sing this funeral song for the king of Tyre. So we start out talking about an actual king. Ezekiel is, an, Ezekiel is addressing a real king. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. Here's where we shift in language. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, red carnelian, pale green peridot, white moonstone, blue-green beryl, onyx, green jasper, blue lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian, or cherub, some of your versions may say. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all of your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So I brought fire from within you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All who knew you are appalled at your fate. You have come to a terrible end and you will exist no more. So this is a a prophetic word that Ezekiel has where he's actually talking about this supernatural spiritual being who is behind this king of Tyre. This spiritual being the Bible calls Lucifer. And the name Lucifer actually means shining one. Isn't that a fitting description for what we just read? That this created being from God, the most mighty and beautiful of all of God's creation of angelic beings was called the shining one. He had a role and a job that we're going to uncover here, but his, his mission, his reason for existence was to reflect and amplify the glory of God. His whole reason 
for existence was to lead the angelic hosts in praise to God. And in doing that, to take that in and reflect it and amplify it out to God. The devil, as a created being in God's angelic order, was designed to bring glory to God, to take the praise of all of his other angelic beings and direct it to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was the shining one. His makeup literally made this possible. God designed him. God designed him specifically to expand and refract and reflect and express the glory of God. That's what he was made to do. That's what he was called to do. In verse 14, it says that he was the anointed cherub, that his role was the most senior in all of God's creation. Not only was he the most beautiful, he had the most authority of God's created angelic beings. And his role, just like in the symbolism of in the Old Testament, how the, the wings of the cherub covered the ark, his role was to cover God's throne in praise. Probably, in fact, to cover God's whole created universe in praise. Verse 15 is when the wheels start to fall off. It says, unrighteousness was found in him. No longer content to simply be a conduit for praise. This mighty angelic being wanted to reserve glory for himself. He wanted to reserve the right to, to have his own praise and his own glory. After all, he was the most brilliant and powerful of all the other angels. Surely, surely, surely that was cause for him to hold for himself some of the glory that was only due to God. In Ezekiel, it talks about pride and vanity and rebellion as the things that led him to actually go to war against God. Isaiah 14, if you want to turn that just to the left in your Bible, Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, you'll find it eventually. It's talking about this angelic being as well. It says, for you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away from the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. If you're taking notes, I want you to just jot a few things down as we look to that. The first thing that Lucifer determined for himself, you notice these repeating statements, I will, I will, I will. Lucifer rising up in a spirit of rebellion and independence, no longer satisfied with giving glory to God, wanting glory for himself, declares that I will not be under God's sovereign control. I will not submit to him any longer. I will not give all glory and praise to him. I am going to establish for myself an authority and a kingdom. The first one, I will ascend speaks of Lucifer wanting to rule where God ruled from the seat of his throne, from the place of authority. Lucifer wanted that authority to rule as only God rules. Number two, he said, I'll raise my throne. Under there, the stars often in the Bible are symbolic imagery of the angels. And essentially what he was saying is he wanted independent authority from God. He wanted the ability to rule his own universe, his own created beings. He wanted for himself the rulership and authority of the angelic realm. Number three, I will sit on the mount. Mountains through the Bible are symbols of the kingdom of God. Not only did he want the seat of God, he wanted the territory of God wasn't satisfied to just have authority. He wanted what God had made. He wanted to the outermost bounds of God's creation, the territory that would come along with kingship and rulership. 
Number four, he said, I will ascend above. Oftentimes in scripture, clouds are representative of the glory and the presence of God. Lucifer, in his pride and in his vanity and in his arrogance and rebellion, decided in his heart that he wanted for himself the glory that was only due God. He wanted for himself the adoration that comes with the presence of God. He wanted to be the one that every other created angelic being was looking to for presence. He wanted to be the one that satisfied all of those needs and desires in them. He wanted to occupy that place of glory and presence. And then he says, number five, I will make myself like God. No longer acceptable for him to serve. He now wanted to serve, be served. He wanted to own. He wanted independence. What Lucifer, I believe, was so desperate for was the power to be able to initiate. In kind of theological terms, God is talked about as the uncaused cause, that God is actually the initiator of everything. And in his ignorance and in his stupidity, somehow Lucifer believed if he, if he mounted a rebellion against God, that somehow he would step into this place of being able to create something of his own, to rule something of his own making and manufacturing. But the Bible is clear that God alone is the creator and initiator of everything. It was by the word of his power and the breath of his mouth that he spoke life, the very life we live in existence of, into being. And in his pride and in his arrogance, somehow he thought if he could just usurp the throne of God, that maybe, just maybe, that would translate in the ability to create something of his own, to walk independently from God. Just think about our lives and our culture today. Isn't sort of this, this groaning that's going on over the earth, this tension and this struggle, isn't it rooted in, in our desire, humanity's desire to live independently of God, to be the author and the captain of our own ship, to be the one who stands in their own authority to make judgments and decisions over their own life? To say, God, no, I don't, I don't actually submit to who you made me to be. I don't submit to what you've said over me. I don't submit to what you've created. I want the independence. I want the authority. I want the ability to control and to create and to initiate. And the hard, hard lesson that Lucifer learned that day is that is reserved for God and God alone. It's not something that he gives away. It's actually his very nature. And so from this rebellion of this mighty angelic being, the Bible says that, that God, and we're going to read this a little bit, God had a response for Lucifer. He had a response for him. I love this about God. One of the characteristics and attributes of God is that he's omniscient. He knows everything. There's nothing that God has to work to figure out. There's nothing that's too deeply hidden. There's nothing that's too complex or ununderstandable. He lives outside of this time and space that we reside in. And so God didn't have to think about what to do in response to Lucifer's rebellion. He didn't have to go back to his war room and, and kind of strategize his next move. He already knew what was going to happen and he already knew what his response would be to Lucifer. And one of the responses that God had already predetermined and done was in creating a place the Bible calls hell. It's also called through scripture Sheol, in other words, that describe it. Matthew 25, 41 in the New Testament, if you want to turn there with me. Matthew 25, verse 41. 
says this. This is uh, the words of Jesus. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demon. I want you to underline or circle that word prepared. What Jesus is indicating there is that this place the Bible calls hell is not a product of the devil's craftsmanship or manufacturing. It's actually a place, get this, it is a place created by God for judgment on sin and wickedness. We have this distorted perspective, probably from all of the great Marvel comic book movies that are out, but we have this distorted perspective that somehow the devil had the ability to create something on his own outside of God, that he is an equal and opposing foe to God, but he's not. Even the place where he will reside for eternal torment and punishment was not the product of his own making or doing. It's actually a place prepared for him by God. Just wrap your mind around that for a minute. The devil is not even the king and ruler of his own place. The very place that he's been working to send people for all of eternity and for all of human history, he doesn't even rule there. We have this distorted, maybe it's from the, the far side comics, which are actually really funny, but we have this distorted perspective that he's this great pompous king down in hell and that he just kind of ruling the show and calling the shots, that he's created this, you know, super fun and engaging environment that, you know, might be a little sucky sometimes, but is actually pretty good. The Bible says that even he doesn't rule there, that he will actually suffer a worse fate than anyone in human history that all of his power, all of his authority, all of his control, all of it will be stripped and he will be bound in torment for eternity. He is not the ruler of any kingdom. He's not the ruler of this earth ultimately. He's not the ruler of God's kingdom and he's certainly not the ruler of what he tells us is his own kingdom. He has no choice and no say, no authority in the matter. Revelation 19.20, so how is hell described? I wanna leave you with a few observations. We're gonna move through these pretty quickly, but I just wanna give you an overview of how the Bible describes it. We're not going to get super in-depth into every one of these, but Revelation 19, verse 20 says, And the beast that Satan was captured, and with him the false prophet, who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had, been at, all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive, into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So hell is described as a fiery lake of burning sulfur. Matthew 13, 40 to 42. Again, Jesus talking about it. Says this. Matthew 13, 40 to 42. Says... The Son of Man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Jesus goes through Mark 9, 43 to 48, Matthew 13, 49 to 50. Let's take a quick look at that. That is the way, this is Jesus again speaking, that is the way it'll be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand all of these things? Jesus is asking. So we come full circle 
the very parable that we started this whole series with six or seven weeks ago, I want to bring you back to this and make a few observations. Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. This is Jesus telling a parable, and we've talked about the different ways that Jesus would communicate and the different writing styles that are found in the Bible. And we've discussed the reality that just because it's a parable, it doesn't actually mean there's not specific truth rooted in there. That just because it's a parable doesn't mean that we have to understand every word allegorically or metaphorically. That Jesus is actually probably uncovering something that has a lot more potency on its face value than maybe we give it credit for initially. So Jesus tells his disciples a parable. There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over from you to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home for I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham. But if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they wouldn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. I want to leave you with just some observations. You can write these down from this text and from the different ones we've read today. Number one, we've talked about this, that there's continuity between this life and the next life. That when we walk through death, we don't become someone different. We don't, uh, be evap we don't become evaporated and become a disembodied spirit. We don't take on a different personality. We don't become angels. We don't become anything other than who God made us to be. There's continuity. There's continuity for those who go to heaven, and there's continuity in our life for those who actually do not have the opportunity to go to heaven and go to hell. Number two, the rich man retained his memories. He remembered exactly what happened on the earth. He remembered the people and the context. He remembered his family. This idea that somehow when we pass through this life into the next one that our memory gets erased and that we just live in this eternal state of nothingness and unknowingness is categorically not biblical. He retained his memory. Number three, there was torment without comfort. Man, the one thing that he was crying out for was unavailable to him. Number four, he was conscious of his punishment. He was conscious of what was happening. There's another lie out there that, that says that when we pass from this life to the next, we reach a state of unconsciousness. That's not what the Bible teaches. In this story, both Lazarus and the rich man were equally conscious, using their full intellect, reason, logic, their full faculty mentally. Number five, this is a scary one. 
The rich man lived in isolation. You know, again, you've probably seen the Gary Larson comic, you know, right, when people are kind of going down into hell and it's like, oh, I see all my old friends and all my old pals. Let's just talk about the good old days. Not true. I believe one of the greatest torments of hell will be utter and complete isolation. Abject, like nothing. No one to console you, no one to commiserate with, no one to talk to. It's like being sent into solitary confinement for eternity. No hope of human connection, no hope of relationship, no hope of all the things that we are blessed with in this life, in our families and in our relationships. You're not going to be down there commiserating with your family and friends. You're going to be in utter isolation. Enjoying none of the blessings that God has given us in relationship with each other. Number six, hell is eternal. This idea is under attack in the church today. There's some people who believe in annihilism and that, you know, hell is ultimately just a, a, a final destroying of those people. But when Jesus said he, he would come and bring an end to people in hell, the word there was not for annihilation. It was the death of everything they had walked with that resembled the presence of God. Every good thing, every blessing, gone. But living for eternity in isolation, in torment, no comfort, no life, no joy, no peace, no moment of reprieve. Number seven, what does the Bible say? Who will actually be found there? First group of people that we find there, they're not people, but beings there will be actually the angels who rebelled. One third of the angels in heaven are said to have rebelled against God and followed Lucifer in his plan to revolt. Revelation 19 again says that those angels who have now become demons will actually be cast down into hell for eternity. It gets even more heavy from there. Revelation 20. 11 to 15. I want to just read this. This is John's vision. I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. There will be nowhere for us to go outside of the grace of Jesus on that day. No distance we can run, no sin we can bury that will not come into the light. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. All were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone anyone whose name is not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So in this place, the Bible calls hell. Those angelic beings that rebelled against God will be found there. The devil will be found there. And the humans who rejected the good and gracious gift of God will be found there. First or Second Thessalonians 1.9 says that hell 
will be the absolute removal of the presence of God. It will be a complete separation from that. But it's not just a spiritual thing. It's not just like an abstract kind of, oh, I, I guess maybe that won't be so bad. It'll be a physical thing. It'll be a mental thing. It'll be an emotional thing. Every one of our senses coming alive, but in the worst way possible, living for eternity, separated from the presence of God. The question before us is, what is our default destination? Is heaven or hell our default destination? You know, they say statistically in the United States and Canada that for 120 people, for every 120 people who believe in heaven, only one believes in hell. So I think it's a reasonable question to ask, what is the default then? The Bible is also alarmingly clear on that. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Heaven is not our default. David said in Psalm 51 from, that we were born into sin. From our mother's womb, we were born under the curse of sin from the fall in Genesis 3. That all of the impact and the effects of that we are born into as part of the human race. And that we need for us a deliverer, a savior, somebody who would pay the penalty and the price for that sin because we can't do it on our own. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. We can't achieve it through our own uh, uh, effort or merit. The Bible says that all of us fall short of God's glory. Who deserves to go to heaven? No one. No one. Not you, not me. We don't deserve it. But the Bible says it's a gift from God. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Romans 5. It is not by works. It's a gift from God. It's the acknowledgement that Jesus came and lived a perfect and sinless life and that on the cross he paid the full and complete penalty for our sin and that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not all who practice religion will be saved. Not all who have a list of what's good and what's bad and what's right and wrong will be saved, but simply all who call on the name of the Lord, who confess him as Lord of their life will be saved. Some people have this idea and we throw it around so flippantly like, yeah, love wins in the end. Love wins in the end. Yes, love wins. But love wins because of the astronomical cost of sin. Love only wins if there's an equal and proportionate judgment that God renders. Love doesn't win at the expense of God's holiness and his righteousness and his judgment. Love wins because he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. But love wins only because one day he will come to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. The same scales on the balance for all of us. And the question will be, what did you do with what you knew? What did you do when it came to my son Jesus? What did you do with the sacrifice that he made for you? Did you accept it? Did you humble yourself, surrender your life to him and accept the free gift of God? Or did you reject it? Believing that somehow you could captain your own ship and believing that somehow there was some amount of independence that you could live apart from God. Believing that somehow you had some measure of control over your eternal destiny. The Bible says we don't. 1 John 1.9 says, it's, guys, it's this simple. If we confess our sin to Jesus, 
He's faithful and just. If we come to him in humility and repentance, he will never, ever turn us aside. He never rejects those who approach him, asking them, asking him to be Lord of their life. Never. There's nothing you've done, no place you've been, no thought you've thought, there's nothing you've done that would ever cause Jesus to turn away from you if you approach him with humility and say, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm needing you, I'm asking you to be Lord of my life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talks about the grace that's available to us. I want to read to you again from the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 17. This is our invitation. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Let anyone who hears this say, come. These are the words of Jesus to us today, to come. We don't need to be ashamed or afraid. We don't need to be worried about rejection. We don't need to come in fear. He's inviting us to come today to him. Let anyone who desires Drink freely from the water of life. Jesus said, I am the living water. I'm the bread of life. Everything you need to satisfy you in life is found in me. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. Jesus said, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I want to read you a story that I just think so powerfully illustrates this. Ruthanna Metzgar, a professional singer, tells a story that illustrates the importance of having our names written in the book. Several years ago, she was asked to sing at the wedding of a very wealthy man. According to the invitation, the reception would be held on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the Northwest's tallest skyscraper. She and her husband, Roy, were excited about attending. At the reception, waiters in tuxedos offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages. The bride and groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. Someone ceremoniously cut a satin ribbon draped across the bottom of the stairs. They announced the wedding feast was about to begin. Bride and groom ascended the stairs, followed by their guests at the top of the stairs. A maitre d' with a bound book greeted the guests coming to the doors. May I have your name, please? I'm Ruthanna Metzgar, and this is my husband, Roy. He searched the M's. I'm not finding it. Would you spell it, please? Ruthanna spelled her name slowly. After searching the book, the maitre d' looked up. And he said, I'm sorry, but your name isn't here. There must be some mistake, Ruthanna replied. I'm the singer. I sang for this wedding. The gentleman answered, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. He motioned to a waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator, please. The Metzgers followed the waiter past beautifully decorated tables laden with shrimp, whole smoked salmon, and magnificently carved ice sculptures. 
adjacent to the banquet area, an orchestra was preparing to perform. The musicians all dressed in dazzling white tuxedos. The waiter led Ruth Anna and Roy to the service elevator, ushered them in, and pushed G for the parking garage. After locating their car and driving several miles in silence, Roy reached over and put his hand on Ruth Anna's arm. Sweetheart, what happened, he said. When the invitation arrived, I was busy, Ruth Anna replied. I never bothered to RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I would go to the reception without returning an RSVP. Ruthanna started to weep, not only because she had missed the most lavish banquet she'd ever been invited to, but also because she suddenly had a small taste of what it will be like someday for people as they stand before Christ and find their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So I think it's appropriate to ask, is your name there? It's so simple. It's so simple that it's almost so frustrating that we get so stubborn, so filled with pride and self-righteousness. We get so insolent. We are so filled with this idea that we want to have independence and control over our own life, that we don't need a God to come save us. We can do it for ourselves, but it's so simple. The question for all of us at the end of our life will be so simple. Is your name in this book? Because if it is, welcome to something more extravagant and glorious and magnificent than you could ever, ever, ever have imagined. But if it's not, I'm sorry. There's no other criteria involved here. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much is in your bank account. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you've helped the homeless and the poor. It, none of that makes a difference when it comes to our name being recorded as one who surrendered our life to the Lordship of Jesus, accepted his grace and his mercy, and invited him to come and live in us as Lord of our lives. My whole family isn't here today. My grandfather's in the hospital. I don't even know if he'll be alive by the time I get there this afternoon. My mom took him there yesterday and the doctor said he's, this is the end of life. He was struggling so bad yesterday he couldn't breathe properly and his heart was going all crazy and they managed to just get him comfortable and settled. But within hours or days, he's going to walk through that turnstile called eternity. And there'll be one question that greets him when he does. And it will be, Harold Harnum, is your name found in this book? I'm not interested right now in what you did. I'm not interested in all of your excuses and in all of your complaining and in all of the injustices that you could bring up. I'm simply interested in knowing, did you accept the gift that I had for you? This is real life. Let's stand together. I have no idea where you are in the spectrum of your faith. But I want to give you an invitation this morning and implore you and plead with you not to wait, not to put it off, not to make excuses, not to shy away in fear, not to give in to the enemy's lies that you're not worthy or 
that God would somehow not accept you, that you're a defunct person. I want to implore you today to write your name in that book of life. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Only God has our days measured out and he's asking you, he's saying, come. If you're thirsty, come. If you're hungry for purpose and meaning and life, come. I have it. So this morning we're gonna sing a song as we close and I just, for all of us here, I'm gonna, we're gonna get to lunch. But I'm just asking in this moment that you respect what God is doing in this place. This is not the time to get out and sign your kids out so you can get a jump on the parking lot. This is a sacred time for people to make decisions that have eternal consequences. As we sing the song the team is about to lead us to, if you are in one of two camps, I want to invite you to come to the front. The first camp are those people who've never made a decision to actually give their lives to Christ. And today you wanna have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm gonna invite you to come to the front and I'm gonna pray with you and we're gonna talk with you. Our team is gonna walk you through the best decision you will ever make this side of heaven and for eternity. And the second group of people I want to invite to come to the front are those who maybe made a decision to follow God in times past, but have just been drifting and walking away, who actually have not followed through on their commitment to Jesus in their life. If you're actually wanting to come back to that place of surrender and dependence, to live for the purpose and the vision of God over your life. I want you to come too, and we want to pray for you. I believe God wants to stir and to birth renewal in our families and on our streets for his glory and his kingdom. And that begins when we have the courage to step out. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today, and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.